Hello, this is Patrick. And this is Peter. And you're listening to Translation Confidential. So, tell me, Peter, what do we have to talk about today? Well, I think we were going to cover education and translation. Oh, that's really exciting. Uh, did you have a good time in school? Uh, I did, actually. I enjoyed school. Were I think, you a good student? Uh, yes, very good. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, I was, I was good enough, I think. Uh, what, what was your favorite topic? Uh, for me, uh, unsurprisingly, it was Spanish, which is, Shocker. as it happens, not my job. Uh, how about you? What did you like? Um, well, let's see. I liked history. I liked my business courses in college, so uh, I, I did like those as well, marketing, all, all that sort of thing. Nice. Uh, well, one of my less favorite courses uh, is actually the etymology for today. Outstanding. Do you know where the word algebra comes from? Uh, I don't know, but I was not. that was not my favorite class either. You know, I think that I, I could have liked it more, uh, but I was just, uh, you know, really just one of those, like, language liberal arts kids and uh it wasn't your thing you were going to blame the teacher for a minute there weren't you but you <laughs> thought they might be listening yeah they're like all of my old teachers are like oh man patrick's gonna record a podcast about <laughs> education i better key into this one but seriously my professors i need to shout out to them the faculty at uh center for translation studies great folks absolutely i, I would agree 100 percent. but uh yeah so let's talk about algebra so uh, where does it come from patrick fill us in so it comes from arabic um, which I think a lot of people probably knew that it was like developed in their world and it's a look, kind of Arabic looking word. It means to re- reunite or restore. So jabara is the verb reunite or restore and algebra is the, also pardon my Arabic pronunciation, I know no Arabic. I'm sure you're doing great. <laughs> but uh, it means reunite broken parts and it also uh, means bone setting, like the surgical practice of bone setting. And that was its primary meaning for a really long time until around. I, th- I think I would have rather broken bones sometimes than going algebra. <laughs> I, yeah. Just being real honest. Well, that's actually why I picked this one because I, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a very fun etymology when I was like looking around subjects and things. And then I, I saw this meeting and I thought it was so evocative because it's just like breaking bones as a part of this like topic that a lot of people really struggle <laughs> with and, and have a tough time. But it, eventually the, the meaning did change. And uh, in... The year 830, a mathematician and philosopher named Al-Khwarizmi came up with this mathematical treatise where he used the word algebra or algebra as the title, kind of where he lays out some of the principal ideas of algebra, and that's how it came to have this mathematical meaning. So Very we go cool. from fixing broken bones to breaking kids' skulls in the future. Or, I guess, fixing broken parts of an equation? I don't know, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, that. That's, that seems like the more likely one. Uh, <laughs> the bones one sounds a lot more fun, though. That's, yeah, 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 definitely. But a uh, fun double etymology is that uh, algorithm is actually where we get the word algorithm. Very cool. Yeah, he came up with algorithms, I guess. So, very neat. But that is not what we we're actually here to talk about today. We we're here to talk about education. I was looking over the show notes and I realized that we talk about translation and interpreting a lot in this one more than in other episodes. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in the public services like hospitals and schools, we do much more translation and interpreting rather than just straight translation. So I thought you could maybe give us a primer on how those differ. Sure, absolutely. It's one of the Misnomers in our industry, pretty much anyone who has anything to do with language is always referred to as a translator mm-hmm. or a translation when essentially those are two different acts. So a translator focuses on the written word while an interpreter focuses on the spoken word. So 
in an education setting, um, we're typically providing telephonic interpretation to mm-hmm. support IEP meetings, to support disciplinary meetings, or when a new student comes in from outside of the district or outside of this country, actually, and needs assistance with all, assistance with all the things that go along with registration. On the translation side, it's typically more of an act where we're, again, providing written translation, and it might be of school lunch menus or school bus policies or student handbooks, really anything that supports the day-to-day life of a student or the parent in that school district. All right, that's great. So what I liked about that answer is that it also led us into our next question, which was more about the the people who receive translation. So Mm -hmm. in standard commercial translation, the majority of the work that we do it's B2B, business to business, or we help businesses communicate with their employees. So if you have several branches all over the world, your corporate office can talk to your Italian office or et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the translation services that we provide, or language services more broadly that we provide for schools, who are we translating for? Um, Really, it could vary from uh, student to teacher or student to administrator mm-hmm. or parent parent and the student, both either the administrator or the the teacher. So it's a very valuable service. Without it, I think there would be a lot of difficulties for new students coming into these districts. You know, they have very limited language skills, and typically the ELL departments can only go so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might be a language that's not covered within the school, so oftentimes you have to have an interpreter that sort of bridges that gap. One of the more important things that we do, I, I like it because of the community aspects and how we, uh, we really help the community get stronger. And I'm the son of an immigrant, so mm-hmm. uh, actually immigrants, my, my parents came here in the 60s, and you know this kind of thing didn't exist then, where I think this is a great way to help people integrate into our communities. Yeah, and uh, you, you bring up a good point about less common languages and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I actually used to work at a bilingual school that had full bilingual classrooms and a bilingual faculty and all of that. And it was this really interesting and fun experience. And that worked really well because there was a large Spanish-speaking community that you know, was able to support a school like this. So there were plenty of people who were teachers who were able to speak Spanish, and there were plenty of students, and it, it all worked out really well. And not all of the students were bilingual, and it created this kind of environment that was like very bilingual and very dynamic. Was that an immersion school, Patrick, where, you know, English-speaking students could go to improve their Spanish and Spanish-speaking students would go to improve their English? Or is that, what was the goal of the school? So it was, uh, this was with the Austin Independent School District, um, which oh. is a really great school district. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their primary model at the time, I can't say recently because it's about three or four years ago, their primary model at the time was to transition Spanish-speaking students into using... English as a language of instruction, so it was primarily one way. So, ah, okay. But not all schools are like that, and uh, I do know that there were schools in the district that had two-way programs, and and some people who were my bosses actually, who were monolingual English speakers, had their children in classes that that were kind of built in this this one-way model. That's an important designation, Patrick, because of course some of these models are out of necessity in terms of the mm-hmm. population of the district where there are other goals there are these quote-unquote immersion schools mm-hmm. where you're really trying to give a group of students a bilingual education so they they can gain some level of fluency i, I know in milwaukee we had a few different ones growing up german a german immersion school i, I think <clears throat> near the end of my time in milwaukee there was also a 
talk of an Italian immersion school, which yeah. uh, was very cool. I, I would have appreciated that. That would have uh, helped my GPA as a, yeah, as a high school student. <laughs> yeah, so what was interesting about this model was that uh, they weren't trying to move kids away from Spanish, but I, I think that their main research focus was there was data showing that people who have really strong grounding in their home language first have better success outcomes. So if you are someone who speaks Spanish at home and you learn to read in Spanish, you will be a better reader of English when you start moving into language arts in that way. And so it was like a way of creating foundations in both skills. So it was really cool. Yeah, so that, that works really well in Spanish environments, but then sometimes there are other, or you know, any community or any language that has a strong community in order to support that kind of school. But there is a whole multitude of languages. Right. And what are the languages that we work with when we sure, work with? Sure, sure. Uh, Mo- most of our school schools? districts would love to be uh, in really only facing one additional language. A lot of the school districts we're in uh, will have five, six, 30 languages they have to support. And, of course, they can't necessarily afford to do written translation on all of the languages. So typically what they'll do is they'll look at their population and the groups of folks with the highest numbers are typically where they'll do written work and then they'll supplement with the telephonic interpretation. So some of the languages that we cover across the country, Hmong, Korean, Russian, Mongolian, um, gosh, there's a, a, a lot of the like Haitian Creole. Yeah. Uh, it's really depends on the pocket of I've seen immigration. A, of course, Mandarin and Cantonese as well. Yes, and, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just a number of languages throughout the world. Uh, we have Tigrinya in Ethiopian Eritrea. I think we have a fair number of, we do. Uh, of Ethiopian and Eritrean immigrants in uh, the Midwest, which is where we're located. So mm-hmm. uh, that's something that comes up a lot. Of course, I, I think I mentioned Spanish, but of course Spanish mm-hmm. is one of the, the larger groups as well. My, in this area where we are in the Chicago area, Mongolian seems to be one of the ones that ours, that, that group seems to really be growing uh, very aggressively. And, and of course, there's there's really a whole lot of different languages that we support and it really varies district by district and we've even found some of the districts that we've been working with for a long time their populations change over time of course Mm -hmm. and the emphasis uh, will change I I know when we first started working with one of the local districts Polish was one of the languages that was more sought after and it seems like that's decreasing in terms of their population now and again like I, I mentioned Spanish is always pretty consistent but Mongolian is on the rise right now yeah, so it's very interesting. I think a lot of times when you think about languages in schools, there there's some go-tos that you have, and I think Spanish would be a big one. But it really is any world language. Like there are plenty that we work with, and uh, the telephonic interpreting list, their availability is just tremendous. Like, oh my what gosh, they can get yes, for you. it's it's a, it's over two hundred languages now, and that's pretty common. Most of the services that are providing twenty four seven coverage, it's. Um, incredible the number of dialects because you know on the other side of the coin uh, we had talked a little bit about corporate translation we service corporations for telephonic interpretation as well as 911 call centers mm-hmm. and schools so there's really a, a varied level of service that uh, we have to provide so and I, I think one of the things that we should probably go over a little bit too is is you know how does telephonic interpretation differ from what we provide to schools and what we provide to businesses and really it's more of a the setting you know the level of difficulty of the material isn't off the charts when it comes to um, schools you know usually we're helping with IEP plans or 
we're helping just to get people integrated into the system, registration, you know, all the sort of paperwork that goes with being part of a school. Whereas on the corporate side, we're usually supporting meetings or conferences or webinars or that sort of thing. And sometimes it can even be the level of difficulty can, it can be very difficult. You know, it can be very technical in, in, mm-hmm. in terms of the content. For the schools, it really is typically more about registration and just helping a family get settled in. Yeah, ideally, these aren't documents that are for specialists. Anyone should be able to bring their child to a school and help get them enrolled. So you don't really right. have to have a high level of knowledge in the same way that someone who is, you know, and their job. And so, uh, and also, not everyone can be expected to have the same high levels of knowledge in the same fields if we're all doing this thing together. So, and, it, a, and it's interesting too, Patrick. You know, I've seen a lot of movement. Uh, there are a lot of applications that schools use to communicate. So there's there's one called Remind. I don't know if you ever heard about that app, but it's a texting app. And I just noticed that they have a uh, translation widget inside of it. Oh. It, yeah, it's a, l- a little brutal because I, I think it does use machine translation technology. And mm-hmm. we've seen some of our schools work with machine translation when they simply can't afford to do something or it's uh, something in a hurry. It's usually not an approach I favor. I would say you're better off using human translation when you can or leveraging the assets in your building, you know, in terms of the teachers, if you mm-hmm. really don't have the budget uh, before you would go with machine translation, because I just fear that there's a lot of risks involved with that, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone heard my verbal cringe when I heard I, I that there definitely was saw it for a, sure. <laughs> a, a widget. <laughs> I'm just a little skeptical whenever something tells you that translation is built in just because I think that that very possibly could be a good use case for uh, machine translation. Like that's something that we could definitely look at and think about. But I just, I kind of don't like the language of like, oh, it's it's built in there already. And it's like, well, is that really an accurate representation of what you're getting? But I mean, we've, we've delved into that before. Yes, we've covered, so. we, we probably don't want to go down that path. No. We've, we've covered, you can see one of our earlier episodes on machine translation, but yeah, I think you have to be careful because uh, you're also sending a message to the community. And I think that, you know, if you do lousy translation, you're probably sending, you know, the, the, the wrong message. I would explore it with your language service provider and talk to them about your budget. And there's always ways to perhaps cut back on some steps or do some things to save money. Just, you know, put a strategy together, you know, maybe you're not doing editing on something that's not uh, going to injure someone or there's high risk or legal risk. You know, there's always ways to save money on a translation project. I would just encourage people to have an open conversation with their language service provider on how they can save money on a budget. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because uh, a lot of schools are working with, you know, really tight budgets. They have a lot of really important work that they want to get done in a lot of different areas and there are many different fields that are calling for attention. You know, you have your athletic departments, your arts and creativity, you have just regular curriculum, and all of that goes into one budget. And then on top of that, you have to deal with translation. So it can be a little tricky. Do you know of any ways that schools that we've worked with have been able to work around that? Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about translation memory before on our podcast, and I think it's incredibly important for school districts as well. So just very quickly, translation memory is basically a smart database that works alongside the translator. And what's nice about that is the, let's say, the brochure for the school bus program or uh, the documents for registration requirements and residency requirements for a family, mm-hmm. you know, those tend to be very static. They don't really change a whole lot from year to year. 
So the good news is your language service provider should be able to bank all of the translation and translation memory. And then when you go to update those documents, they're only going to charge you on the differential. So that's one method where we've been able to save uh, our school district clients a lot of money. That's a, a smart aspect. And in terms of telephonic interpretation, again, if you have some resources in the building and you can use those first, there are often very capable ELL teachers in the building that might speak some of the languages. And if you can use them as an interpreter and then use the telephonic interpretation service as your, as your fail-safe or your backup, that's a great way to save money as well. Well, a lot of the students will be full bilinguals or on their way to being full bilinguals. So they speak their home language at home and then they'll come to school and they'll have all this exposure to English and then they you know, are getting this exposure at a younger age. If it's before six, that is like when you're like this total language sponge. So like, why not uh, ask a kid? So I have a great story about that, Patrick. Yeah. It's, it's like you cued that one up for me. I didn't even, I don't even, you, don't even you don't even know the story. <laughs> I've never told you the story, but it's almost the, partially the inspiration for getting into translation. It's hilarious. So my mom told me the story. Um, years and years ago, one of my uncles got into some trouble, and he went into the office. And you got to remember, this is the south side of Milwaukee in the, uh, the late 60s. And he got into trouble, and the principal said, well, I can't communicate with your mother, so I want you to call her right oh now and tell her what trouble you caused. And, of course, I'll, I'll cut to the punchline, but, of course, he calls my grandmother, and he says, Mom, uh, I just really want to check what you, you're making for dinner tonight. And she said, well, why are you calling me in the middle of the school? Well, you know, Mom, I, I really missed you, and I just I really wanted to check on things. And then, of course, the principal said, what did your mother say? Oh, she's going to kill me when I get home. Oh, so trouble, she's yeah. very, very upset with me. And, of course, my mom, you know, understanding what was going on, she was at home. She knew exactly what was going on. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's the reason why you can't really use a student to be the go-between. Because, of course, in all seriousness, they may bend the message or they may not understand, especially if we're talking about a disciplinary issue mm -hmm. or something where the child's afraid to talk about. They may misinterpret really what's going on, so you really need to have a third party. Yeah, or if it's something that's of a sensitive nature, if a child's receiving a diagnosis of a learning disability, you don't want to communicate that through the child. I think as the school, you want to have as much control over the message as possible, and I think you know most schools are aware of this. They, they don't want to funnel these messages through their students and other resources that are internal to the community for certain privacy reasons and things like that. Absolutely. And that's another reason why, you know, you can't use another parent or someone from the community. Yeah, all, all too often I've heard that. It's like, ah, well, we have this so-and-so person who's in the PTA who's bilingual or, you know, I would, I would hesitate with any of those solutions. And it's the same thing we tell our clients when they're doing HR or human resource related conversations, mm -hmm. you know, you never really want another employee or someone else sort of in on those conversations. That's not really from a privacy aspect. It's not the smartest thing. You know, again, use your resources that you have under your roof. But if you don't have them, it's, it's smart to, uh, you know, to spend the money and, and get a professional to assist. I think that a, an interesting cost saving measure can also be using telephonic interpretation uh, for documents that can be discussed with a, a parent. So 
Can you tell me a little bit about how interpreting can be cheaper? Because it seems like it would be more expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, great point, Patrick. So if you have a situation where you have a longer document, uh, perhaps it might be an IEP, you know, that, that goes into a lot of detail on, on the plan that's put in place to help a, a student learn. And it's also a document that it may not work as well with translation memory because there's a lot of ind individualized material in the plan. So you're really better off doing an explanation. In other words, getting the document, uh, launching a telephonic interpretation call or a session, and uh, just going through it with the parent sort of paragraph by paragraph so they understand exactly what's going on. You know, that might be a way to deal with it with schools. The, the problem is, is that's often, you know, the plans are often required for signature, so you sort of have that issue as well. But certainly using TI would be better. And even in person, we, we do get some requests from school districts say, hey, we should really do an in-person interpreter. And I don't often suggest that because that's even another level of expense. And you usually mm -hmm. have travel. And if, if sometimes the parents cancel, you have cancellation fees. That's why telephonic is such a better solution because you really don't have to schedule the meeting. It's usually a low per minute cost. If you only use about 10 minutes, that's all you're paying. Whereas if you have an in-person interpreter, you're paying minimums that you have to deal with. And from a translation aspect, again, I'm not sure how much of it you're going to be able to reuse on the very next IEP project or a larger document. Sure. So it sounds like it might be a little technical and difficult. I believe that conference calls have only ever been achieved by wizards who somehow <laughs> have figured out how to, to work with all that holding and picking lines and adding things together. So like, what can you walk me through what telephonic interpretation, if I were, uh, let's do a scenario. So I am a principal and I have to speak to the parent of a child in my school. Uh, the parent only speaks Mandarin. Okay. What so, would I do? So the easiest way to do it is if they're, in, if they're with you. So what you can do is go into a private office, call the service. Uh, you simply request the language and say, all right, this is, you know, here's my access code. This is the language I need. Put the phone on speakerphone, and you can engage immediately. And if the person isn't in front of you, what you can do is call the telephonic interpretation service first, get the interpreter online, and they'll do the conference call for you so you don't have to okay. do the wizardry, which is great, so you don't have to use the conference function. But it's really as simple as that. If you have them in front of you, it's really easy. You just need a private room so you know nobody's really listening in on what you're talking about, especially mm -hmm. if it's a sensitive uh, topic. You basically just need a speakerphone. Is it hard to, to talk with someone talking over you? Is it Have you ever uh, spoken with the assistance of an interpreter? Is it, yes. Is you it know, a skill? It, it is. You, you have to get to a certain pace, right? You can't go on a 15 or 20-minute diatribe and then look at the interpreter and say, all right, here you go, nail that. No, it can't be that way. It's much like... You know, you know, this is consecutive interpretation, much like you would find in a courthouse. So, oh, you, so this isn't UN style. No, not UN style simultaneous. <laughs> exactly. So that's a great, great point, Patrick. There's two types of interpretation. There's simultaneous, which is what you would see at the UN. Usually, someone's in a sound booth and they're they're interpreting in real time to deliver the message as quickly and accurately as possible. That's really what simultaneous is. This is consecutive. So you would speak for a, a small chunk of content. It would be like an idea or thought. You'd pause, you'd let the interpreter uh, jump in, and then uh, you, of course, respond. So it's really, the conversation takes a little bit longer and it has to have a, a certain pace. And we certainly have some best practices that we share with our customers on, on how to make that uh, more manageable, but great question. 
So really, it sounds like other than you know calling the number and then being a little bit mindful of the fact that someone has to remember and say what you're saying, it actually sounds pretty natural. You just talk, mm-hmm. and then the person talks to you, and then your interpreter is also going to be just direct translating. So there's not going to be any situation where they're like, oh, he's saying this or that or that. The interpreter will just speak and just will just say literally the exact words that the other person is saying. That's a, another great question. Yeah, they're, think of them as a mirror, a mirror with a delay. Yeah. You know, you're saying something and they're basically just going to repeat it in the, in the other language and they don't add opinion they don't weigh in and they're not they shouldn't be expected to in other words that's not really their role they're really Mm -hmm. supposed to just be a megaphone if you will or a mirror of the conversation that's taking place all right well that's great that that clears up some of the the questions i think some people might have about how interpreting works oh i should probably say this so it's kind of a a thing among interpreters but it's the the term is interpreting interpretation is different um, yes. Interpreting the way it was described to me is that it's a little more verby because the, it is a very a, a very engaging and active process. I've only done uh, very little in my life and it was uh, very exhausting and I couldn't really keep it up for that long. So uh, yeah, it is definitely a different skill set. And I would say you know all too often people think a translator can interpret and they think an interpreter can translate and they're very very different skill sets. It is. I, you know, I, I don't regret that this is turning into the interpreting episode because we are, you know, this is something that comes up a lot with, with this kind of client, with the schools. So, uh, yeah, I will definitely say that uh, the training that they undergo is very different. I, I do some, like, to stay sharp, um, some interpreting exercises to, like, help me for potential future scenarios when I might be interpreting. And one of the things that you have to do is listen to audio and then repeat what they're saying with a six-second delay. And that is crazy making. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've, uh, uh, I've only did, done uh, a bit of interpreting in, in my past. Um, there was a, a, an Italian furniture manufacturer very early in my career that came over and uh, was really wanted help with some business meetings. And, uh, yes, I found it to be one of the most exhausting days of my life. <laughs> So we, we've kind of gone into interpreting and how that can be a low-cost solution and kind of tried to give some pointers to, to people who are maybe going to use this in their own schools or even in their offices or uh, in any case. Um, but what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles facing schools who are trying to in, expand their, um, I don't even really know how to say it, their, their language offerings, their, mm-hmm. their language accessibility? Great question. You know, it typically is funding. You know, funding mm-hmm. is probably the number one impediment. Um, you know, there are some school districts that, of course, they have to get approval and they have to make sure that they have a program in place and which languages do you choose. And there's sort of a lot of these delivery questions that have to be done. And I know those are typically handled at the school board level. You know, a school may put together, a school district might put together its requirements, but then it usually has to go to the school board oftentimes as well. They might go to the state and try to get some funding or, you know, federal or state funding. We were just recently at a, an ELL conference in Michigan. It's the, the Mighty Saul conference. And it was interesting just chatting with the different teachers and administrators there and talking a little bit about the funding process. And it sounds a little bit challenging, but for the, the school districts that do get that funding, it's nice. It's a, a paved way to be able to provide these services. Um, in terms of other obstacles, yeah, I, I would just say it's, Gosh, if you're in one of these districts where there's 30 languages, how do you choose? I mean, that's really the tough thing. And what we've seen most clients or most of the school districts, most customers that we work with, 
we've seen them do is just based on population. You know, you try to cover the most, most the, the highest concentration of population as you can. Yeah, well, it sounds like some some really difficult work, but uh, it's fortunate that we have a, a system of dedicated teachers who are are willing to put the work in and make these decisions and do their research. And I would just say that the only thing is, you know, I know these people work really hard. I used to work in a school. People in schools are really passionate and dedicated people. And I, I just think it's important that you find someone who's passionate and dedicated who will work with you. I think. Yeah, I would definitely uh, give kudos to um, the administrators and all the ELL teachers. I mean, it was going to these conferences is really eye-opening. I mean, these are folks that are very passionate about what they do, and their number one concern is, is helping students and families to uh, to get along in our society and our network here in the States. So kudos to, to all of the ELL teachers out there. How about if we do a quick recap? Yeah, so, yeah, sounds so good. So Patrick, what, do you, what were some of the takeaways you had? What was your number one takeaway from today? My number one takeaway from today was that telephonic interpreting can be a low-cost solution to some translation issues, especially if you're dealing with less commonly taught languages in the United States. Great. Yeah, for me, I think, was the point right at the end. I think to make this work, you have to have really good, committed teachers and administrators. And, uh, and I think agencies. Like, I want to I uh, yes. put the impetus Kudos on Kudos to ourselves, I guess. As well. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely, because, you know, this is not where everyone wants to be. Uh, you know, obviously from a business perspective, the, you know, the margins are lower and, and working with schools and, and rightfully so, it's more of a community-based service. But yes, kudos to the agencies that tackle these projects and very thankful for the ELL teachers and the administrators. So is, so is everything else in education, and people are willing to do it. So I am you know, excited about the topic, and I, I love working with schools, so I am now in the mood to get translating some menus or some IEPs or something. <laughs> Great. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some more. So uh, thank you very much for, for listening and looking forward to the next installment of our podcast. Yeah, this is Patrick. And this is Peter. Thanks for listening.